We are grateful today uh, for those who have gone before us and who have uh, made it possible for us to have this property, have this building, and have taught Sunday school classes over the years and have started Awana programs over the years. One of those people has gone home to be the Lord, Carol Cundy, as you know. And uh, we want to pause for a moment and just thank the Lord for her life and uh, think of her for a moment. And uh, she has finished faithful, and her funeral will be here on Tuesday at 10 a.m. here in the, in the church, and there will be visitation on Monday night. The details are uh, available to you, but uh, we wanted to stop today and thank the Lord for her life. And we want to also ask God's special help for her family as they grieve her earthly loss. This week, Trent Rourke also passed away. And, uh, and so um, our hearts are heavy about that. But now both of these folk were, were devout believers in Jesus who went to be with the Lord. And so we're super grateful. We could also be easily announcing the death of Otis Henderson today, but we're not. Because Otis is right back there, and Otis has survived COVID. Let's thank the Lord for Otis. <laughs> Otis and Heather are new to us, new to our membership, and new to our church, and he came close to going to be the Lord. And uh, we're so grateful that God delivered him. And uh, as I look out on the congregation today and I see people that, uh, that, were, uh, that haven't been here for a while because you went to Florida and you got in the sun and then you watched online, didn't you? And you went to a local church and we didn't resent that at all. No, we didn't even think that way. That's not how we are. We're not that kind of people. We were super happy for you. But when we see you come back, it's like a breath of spring and it's so sweet to have you back. And also, hey, thanks for those of you who weathered the Michigan winter, too. We're proud of you. It's just good to be here together. I, uh, I got on, did I miss a wonderful comment back there? Like, I don't like missing out on stuff, fear of missing out. Last week, I was thrilled to watch our service online. I got, I got to go to Chuck's Wendell's Church. They call it Stonebriar Community Church. People call it Chuck's Wendell's Church. It doesn't belong to him. It actually belongs to Jesus. But Chuck's Wendell's the pastor, so that, that was a cool thing. Um, and then I got to go to our, Lois and I got to go to our, our children's church there in McKinney, and we were so blessed uh, to see faithful people around the world. And uh, Lois walked in there, and they were super great, they were super friendly, and they said, hey, would you like some tea? And Lois says, is it sweet? And they go, it's Texas, of course. <laughs> and of course, it's sweet. So that was good. And uh, what a wonderful um, service to watch, though. And to see you and hear your, your beautiful songs. And Pastor Leo, your encouraging message. Thank you so much. I was so blessed to hear it. it I, as you know, we talked about this. I was walking around the streets of McKinney where the sun was shining. It was like 80, but a wonderful 80 degrees. A wonderful temperate 80 degrees. And listen to that helpful message. And what a great way to cap the series. Thanks so much, Pastor. So neat to have you serving here and together to do that. The, Pastor Lou and I take special delight in, our, in the fellowship that we have to share uh, ministry and have him as one of our elders and have him on the bench. Uh, so that was wonderful. Now we do want to stop and pray. We talked about it, but let's stop and pray right now. Lord, we uh, are thinking about Carol Gundy today. And uh, we're rejoicing in her faithfulness and her life. 
And we're thinking, Lord, about how you enabled her to be faithful, enabled, enabled her to be merciful, and uh, to raise children for the Lord, and to be faithful in her marriage, faithful in her as a church member, as a teacher, and as a caregiver, and a helper. And, and we're just thinking about her today, and miss her, and, and want to say thank you for her, and for the hope of eternal life. And thank you for Trent, and for his faith, and I pray for Carol, that you'd comfort her and help her. Pray for family, of course, of Carol Gundy and Gary in particular, and the boys, that you'd, you'd comfort them and help them too in this time of grief and, and mourning. And yet, Lord, we, we are not grieving without hope. We thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, today we're, we're so grateful to hear the voices of the faithful. We're so grateful to see little ones there waving the palm branches and singing. We're so grateful to see the Sunday school classes meeting and people gathered in circles around the word they're in all ages grateful to hear the, the rhythm of the drums and the beauty of the organ and all the other instruments. And, and to be here and to celebrate the song that's more, that's sweeter than any song ever, songs about you, old and, and new. And we're grateful for this place and these people. We're grateful for all of your people around this, this town and this county and our state and throughout the world that are gathering faithfully and celebrating today. And we're, we are grateful for Otis, that you spared his life. I pray that you would strengthen him. He's got a lot to do for you and help him and Heather as they recover in their finances as well. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with all those that are in any distress today. We are especially thoughtful of those in the world who are displaced because of war and pray that you'd help them as they're in such a sad situation even as we saw that seminary there in, in Kiev that was blown up. It's a beautiful seminary, completely destroyed. I pray, God, that you would have your way, even as the nations mock you. We know your son is seated on the throne in heaven forever. And so now as we contemplate that, I pray that you would drive out any pocket of rebellion, any pocket of resistance, any, any selfish stubbornness in our own hearts. Help us to examine ourselves, that you would be our King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a great African-American preacher in Los Angeles who had a famous Easter sermon. It made its way around the world. Others have taken it up and they've preached it and they've written books about it. The pastor's name, as you probably know, was E.V. Hill, and he's gone to be the Lord. And his Easter sermon was famously titled, It's Friday, See how famous it is? You even knew it. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, today's sermon backs up to Palm Sunday, though. And I have tinkered with E.V. Hill's title to form the title of my sermon. This is probably a good time for you to know that if there is a title of a sermon on your bulletin, it's a working title. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, do you really think that a guy like me works out that far ahead? No, I do not. That's not how I roll. So the working title is what you get, and then the real title is what I come up with sometime whenever the Spirit strikes me. And, uh, and so the, the working title was from the last phrase of this beautiful psalm, Psalm 2, and if you're sharp, you've already turned in your Bible to Psalm 2, and it is, blessed are those, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. But my title is... It's Sunday, 
but Friday's coming. It's Palm Sunday, but Friday's coming. So now huge crowds have gathered in, in the triumphal entry that all four of the Gospels record this. And the triumphal entry is described there in different ways in all four of the Gospels. And it's always struck me as a bit of an odd story. It's not an unbroken celebration to Jesus the King. It's a little bit hard to understand when you read it. As a matter of fact, in, in John 12, 16, it says, his disciples didn't understand these things at first until after he was glorified. There were things that were happening in the triumphal entry that even his disciples were like, what is going on here? They maybe should have known, but they really didn't understand this. So, so huge crowds have gathered for Passover. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives and then back up to Jerusalem. The crowds are with him celebrating. There's another crowd. It's a curious crowd because they're in Jerusalem and they've heard of the raising of Lazarus. And there's quite a stir about that. And they're coming out to meet him. Uh, and then um, there are a number of religious leaders who are very concerned. They're mostly jealous and some are openly hostile already. The children there are celebrating, they're crying out in praise, and not everyone's happy about that. By the way, P.S., I always want to be the church people that are not crabby to the kids. You know what I'm saying? You guys are great about that. When I came, first came to Bethel, I'm already on a rabbit trail this early in my message. This is dangerous. But when I first came to Bethel, there was an adult class over here, and um, the kids came up at the end of the class. The kids were out of their Sunday school classes, and the adult class was still meeting. And the kids started playing basketball in the gym, making a ruckus. And I watched the people, and nobody acted irritated by that. Nobody. And I thought, I like this church. I like this church. So that's sweet. Good job, people. There were people that were saying, listen, the kids are shouting his praise. And there are people that were saying, tell them to be quiet. So it was an odd story. What was going on there? What was happening? The Romans must have been on high alert because of this display of nationalism. They were watching for it to boil over into anarchy. It does seem like the sun was shining high in the heavens that day, but, but off on the horizon was a dark cloud forming, a, a dark storm brewing. The people were shouting, save us now, save us now. But one, at one point, though, Jesus was weeping. And he was saying they missed the day of their visitation. And he's prophesying doom and defeat to Jerusalem. In this very middle of this celebration of the tr what we call the triumphal entry, why the dark cloud behind the celebration of the triumphal entry? What was going on there? Well, it's Sunday, we know. It's Palm Sunday, but Friday's coming. Three things are happening here, at least, and they're happening in every human heart, and they're happening in every home. They're happening in every individual and every state and every organization, these three things that we're going to talk about, were things that were happening there, and we understand them by looking at Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 is the coronation psalm, used in coronations of Israel's national life. But Psalm 2 is also a very, very special psalm. Its placement in the Psalter is it's a part of the two-psalm introduction to the Psalms, talking about who's blessed and who isn't, 
who's individually blessed in chapter 1 or Psalm 1 and who's nationally blessed in Psalm 2, and it sets up the theme of, the, of all the Psalms. But it's a very, very unique and a very, very special Psalm because it's not only used in the national life of Israel, but it's also it's one of the special Psalms that we call Messianic. And we know a Psalm is Messianic. It actually even contains the name of Messiah in it. We know it's Messianic because Jesus either used it to refer to himself or the New Testament writers under in holy writ in sacred writ use it to use quoted it as a reference to jesus in the new testament and this is frequently quoted psalm 2 is frequently quoted as a reference to jesus so this should cause the hair on the back of our neck to stand up this is a beautiful psalm but it's even more than a beautiful psalm there's something very very special about it. this and the, the placement in the psalms and because it's a messianic psalm and we know that it's talking about Jesus, all those who honor him and all those who love him, all those who adore him and all those who long for him should sit still and say, what do you have to say to me in this psalm? And when I was a boy and I read this, it confused me. What does this mean toward the end? Kiss the sun. What's that all about? It, 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 see, it interested me, but it also confused me. It's a little bit like the whole story of the triumphal entry. It's interesting, but it's a little confusing. And I will tell you this, the Bible doesn't yield its fruit to triflers. The Bible doesn't yield its greatest treasures to people who just give a cursory reading to it. The Bible, you know this if you've been around a bit, the Bible yields its treasures to those of us who, who, who devotedly study it. And then all of a sudden we go, oh, and this has happened in my heart as I have prepared for the Palm Sunday sermon and studied Psalm 2. And I trust that it will also will stir your heart up for the king. And so we, we now look at Psalm 2 again. And, and there are four stanzas, but it's a sermon, so it's going to have three points. So the way it's going to work is the first stanza is going to give the first point. But the second two stanzas, the two and three there, they, they talk about the response to the ugly thing that's happening in the first stanza. And they go together, there are two movements. And there's a third. And here, here's the way it works. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and we're, what we're doing here is we're using this psalm to help us understand something that happens in the human heart all the time. We're using this psalm to help us understand what happened on that day in the triumphal entry, what made it such an odd day. We're using that psalm to help us understand what's happening in America today. We're using this psalm to help us to see the human condition. And here's the things that we see. Three things. One, we see that human beings are naturally resistant any rule, and especially the rule of the one true God. Human beings are naturally the enemies of God. Now, this is hard to swallow, but the scriptures are clear about it, and there's a way to prove it. Human beings, all of us, naturally resist the rule of God. Now, the second thing, though, is this, and we're going to see it as we study the psalm in, the, in those two stanzas in the middle, if you will. There are three verses each, is how it works in the, in the psalm. The second thing that we're going to see is that there is, however, an ultimate ruler of the universe. So we resist rule, but there is a ruler. And then we're also going to see in the third thing, in the last movement, in the really kind of the beautiful movement toward the end, it's almost like an offer of refuge and an offer of rule, an offer of amnesty. We're going to see in that last movement there is first, we are rebels in heart. 
Second, there is a ruler. There is one who is the legitimate ruler king. And third, we need him. And ultimately, we really, he is who we long for and who we want. And we can have him. So let's just say what we just said and study our way through this together as a way of devoted followers of Jesus lining the way and watching him pass and saying, oh, how I love him, and I will follow him, and he's my king. Human beings naturally resist rule. All of us resist rule. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Like Isaiah said, we've turned everyone to our own way. Throughout the New Testament, we are taught that we are the enemies of God. Before we knew God, we're the enemies of God. We, we like the idea of God if he's a powerful being who's on our side to do what we want. But we're not so sure about the idea of God if he demands total loyalty from us and tells us to do what he says. We're open to him if he follows us, if he endorses our plans. Now, this is what was happening in the triumphal entry. There, there are groups there. You know, you obviously had a group that kind of followed him from Galilee and they were maybe loyal. Some of those people might have been not only loyal, but in the know and knowing what's going on. Probably not many of them. Most of them were loyal and faithful and they were, they were shouting positive things, but they were a little confused. So there were those who misunderstood. We've already read from John. There were those like, well, I'm really not sure what's going on here. We also know there were those who hated him desperately and wanted to murder him. And then, and then there was a group of people that were just disillusioned, obviously. They kind of had the wrong idea. Oh, finally the king is coming. going to throw off the Roman yoke, and we're going to have a kind of Jewish nationalism. Now, we know that's not a problem in America today. There's not such a thing as Christian nationalism. We don't have to deal with that at all. We never see any of that, do we? People that think we can elect somebody and bring the kingdom. We don't see that, do we? I'm being facetious, right? You can tell I'm being sarcastic. In other words, the problem that they had, the Jewish nationalism, is a temptation for all of us who see our country going to hell in a handbasket, right? And we go, what's going on here? Certainly there's somebody that we can elect, and, so, and these people now, when they're pushing Jesus forward to take over right now, Jesus is almost in a passive-aggressive way saying, here's what I'm doing, already not yet. I am the king, I'll rule later. Right now, I'm going to suffer. Nobody was ready for that. Nobody was ready for that that was unique to them. And they hadn't studied really, really carefully because the Old Testament taught that very, very plainly. But they wouldn't see it until after he was glorified. That's what's happening. They misunderstood the nature of his rule. But they, they especially misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. They misunderstood the timing of his kingdom. They misunderstand. They, they, they didn't realize it would be spiritual at first and, and significant and real, but spiritual and, and spiritual and physical and literal, physically literal later. Now, if he does what they want, they'll follow him. But if he demands that they do what he says, it, it, it involves suffering. You know, they're not so sure. So we're all like that. That's what you're seeing here. And so this is the way the psalmist has expressed it, why the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're not going to have this man telling us what to do. We're not going to have them ruling over us. 
No, that's, that's what's happening. So all of humanity is in rebellion against God, and it's best for us to understand that before we knew the Lord, we were enemies of God. We were in rebellion against God. They say that during the godless French Revolution, someone climbed up into the top of the cathedral at Notre Dame, and they said, we're going to remove the cross. We're going to remove every reminder of God from this society. And someone shouted to them, you'll have to climb higher and remove the very stars of God. This is true. God is everywhere, and men resist him, and women resist him everywhere. One preacher said, this resistance, this rebellion may, is usually disguised in different forms. There are pockets of resistance. Of course, obviously we can see there are people that are overtly hating God. And we're not really so worried about them right now. God is just laughing about that. But we're talking to the faithful right now. You, you all, myself. And what we want to do today is we want to examine our own hearts. We want to examine our own will for pockets of resistance to God. We want to examine our own will for little excusable rebellions, for areas of willfulness that we have, for soul rebellion or, or soul stubbornness. One fellow I heard say, this can be disguised like as a young man choosing to live in immorality, but it's really just rebellion against God. It can be disguised as a business person living only for possessions or for positions, but it's really resistance to God's rule. It can be disguised as an old woman who wouldn't think of doing other things but gives in regularly to gossip. This can be disguised as a child refusing to obey her parents. It can be disguised as a wife refusing to show honor to her husband. It can be disguised as a man who lives selflessly and not for his wife's good because that's what yielding to the king would really look like. It can be disguised as a professor who's supposed to be wise but he's planting seeds of doubt in the minds of his students all of the time. But Psalm 2 pulls back the, the facade and exposes this rebellion against God. If you want to understand the world that you live in, and if you want to understand your own heart, you have to see that this is true. In the darkest part of my heart dwells a determined rebellion against God. In my nature, I am an enemy of God. In my nature, I have pockets of resistance, pockets of stubbornness, pockets of selfishness. And it's not so helpful to see them in other people. It's so much more helpful if we can identify them in our own souls. Where is it that I'm reluctant to obey God? Psalm 2 pulls this back. Listen to Colossians 1. Through him, he reconciles to himself all things. Colossians 1, 20, 23. He reconciles all things to himself, whether in heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. You were once alienated. You were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless. He's Paul and Colossians telling us before God, we were, before we knew the Lord, all of us were enemies against God. After we know the Lord, we still, have that, we still have that indwelling sin that wants to resist the rule of God. But you know that, right? In Romans chapter 5, you see that as, as many beautiful things as it says there in Romans about who we are in Christ, one of the things it says about us is before Christ, we were enemies of God, and it's important that we remember that. So that's like point one. Shouldn't surprise us that the nations are in rebellion against God. And the news is not that the nations are rebelling against each other. The news is they're rebelling against God. 
Now, the second thing is that the scriptures teach there is an ultimate ruler. And it's really plain here. Look at verse 4. And then the next two stands, the next six verses. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Somebody said, he's not laughing with them. He's laughing at them. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is an ancient name for Israel. It's more than that, but it is that. It's an ancient name for Israel, an original name for Israel. It's a poetic name for Israel. I have my Mount Zion. I've already put my king there. He's enthroned already. So God is, is, is saying, while the nations are raging against me and while they're you know, beating their chest and rebelling against me, I've already, I'm in the heavens laughing. I've already had my, my king is already enthroned in Jerusalem. He's already there. Which is kind of interesting because when you go there, the Temple Mount has a mosque on it right now. Not always going to be that way. They wouldn't let you up there with the Bible. They're like going around gathering. That was my least favorite part of visiting the Holy Land. They're like, okay, let's all turn our Bibles in now so we can go up and visit the, the mount, the uh, Temple Mount. And you can literally hear kind of militant Muslims shouting and and their, their thing there, they're doing that. What's God doing? He's not trembling. He's not pacing. He's laughing. And he says, my king is already in place. And he says, uh, I will tell of the decree, the Lord, this is verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God says he's in sovereign control. God says he's put his son, Jesus, in place now and forever. And he is going to judge the nations thoroughly. He is completely sovereign. He's completely just. It's a good thing to remember. Don't be, don't be discouraged. Don't join those that are like in despair when you look at the world situation. Turn your Bible to Psalm 2 and go, I see what's going on here. People rebel against God. That's not going to work for them. He's in the heavens laughing. He's enthroned his son, Jesus. The nations are going to be his inheritance. There is an ultimate ruler. And what's interesting is that some have pointed out that this is embedded in our hearts. This is in, and way, one of the ways we can tell that this, this truth of there is a ruler is embedded in all of our hearts. It's, it's in all of our literature. It's in all of our, it's, it's in popular culture. You see it everywhere. You, if you watch movies or if you read books, you see that this is an archetype in literature. There is a king, and he is good and benevolent, and he's wonderful, and he's ruling and reigning, and all the kingdom are benefited by his rule. And then some rebellion rises up against him, and he's exiled, and everyone's now longing for the king to return and waiting for the return of the king. And we know when the king returns that he's going to institute his sovereign, benevolent rule. And we, we long for that. And we write songs about it. We write movies about it. We write books about it. It's embedded in our heart. There's the King Arthur and the Camelot legends. There's the, I have a political hope. And this goes on both sides of the aisle. You hear people saying, if only we can get these principles, these people elected, and these judges appointed, and these people in power, then Camelot will come to America. And on the other side of the aisle, people are saying, but no, it's these people. And it's there, you know, gas, we'll get the gas prices down. And once the gas prices down are down, we won't have any more trouble. <laughs> it's kind of how we do. 
there's that thing in the Lord of the Rings and that whole thing of the return of the king. There's, okay, in my, in my life, you know, I'm not a big scholar. I'm like, there's Andy in Mayberry. There's this benevolent sheriff that he kind of like, everybody comes to him for wisdom. And he kind of, and you think, where is that town? I want to live in that town. I want Andy to play the guitar to me on the porch at night. And I want some of Aunt B's apple pie. I could do without Barney. There's Charles in Walnut Grove. He's the Christ figure in a little cabin in the woods who plays the violin for his little girls to go to sleep at night. And he only gets angry if they mess with Carolyn, which is what you should do. There's Robin Hood who's resisting a corrupt king. It's, it's all over the culture. It's all over the movies that we watch because it's deep in our hearts. Deep in our hearts, even though we're rebels, there is a king and we long for him. That's interesting. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. And that's what was happening. By the way, can I give you a little advertisement? In the summer, we always try to think of something wonderful to do. And what we like to do this summer is, as a church, we're going to go through the book of Daniel. And the reason that we want to go through the book of Daniel is because Daniel is a beautiful book of the Bible. It's full of fascinating things. And it will hearten us. To see that the most high rules in the affairs of men. So we're going to study the book of Daniel. And we're going to think about the coming of Jesus. When is Jesus coming? We don't know. How exactly is that going to work? We're not sure. But good things happen when people are preoccupied with the fact that Jesus is coming back. And so we want to be preoccupied with that this summer. Jesus is coming. And he's coming in the way he chooses to come. And he's going to assert his kingship. His nature. His timing. And the people are saying, we want a king that will deliver us from oppression right now. Make our lives better. We want a chicken in every pot. We want gas prices to go down, etc. He was assuring them the kingdom will come in his way and in his time. And so he immediately cleansed the temple. And one of the things he was saying in that is, you've made, you've, you've made no place for the Gentiles to approach me. You've made the court of the Gentiles a place where you're trading. He says, I'm, he cleansed the temple. He immediately cursed the fig tree, saying, you... you the, the nation of Israel is to allow, is, is to welcome others in, other, other Gentiles in. They didn't get that. And it, it's, it's true in the natural. There's a great principle of life. Have you noticed this? That a person who is a master at something has been mastered by that thing. Like if you play the piano well, you didn't just sit down and start playing. You worked and worked and worked. And if you're really, really good, you worked a lot at it. If you're a good dancer, you didn't just like, you worked at that. You become a master. If you're a good plumber, you were first a journeyman plumber. First you were an assistant, and then you were a journeyman. And for years you were a journeyman. And if you're a master, I can't afford you, but you know, hats off to you, right? You're a master plumber. It's because you have spent your life learning that thing. And you have a thing that you do that other people can't do. You realize you had to spend hours of looking at my girl. And that little girl, sorry, Hope, this is what happens when you're a pastor's kid, right? It, that little girl, when she was like 10 or 11, maybe, how old were you? Was younger, was in her room with hundreds of bottles of nail polish. They were everywhere. And we're like, oh, that's cute. No, that's a career right now. That's a career. And she's good at it. She can paint stuff on your fingernails that most of you couldn't paint anyway. Like, so I'm like, she matched, she's mad, or she's close to that. She's, she's really good at it. Um, Pete played the drums today. And, and we said, when, when the organ took over and the drums quit, he left early. And I said, we're done with you, Pete. But we want you back 
because you're a master. You're real good at that. He's very, very good at that. It's, it, it, to be a master of something, you have to be master first. When I was a boy, I read a book. Well, I kind of made the point here. I read a book called Basketballs for Breakfast. And the idea was the kid ate and slept basketball until he was really, really good and he had to be mastered by it. We know that's true in the natural. What we're seeing here is that's true in the supernatural. It's true in the spiritual. And then it's for us to, and does it sound cheesy, for us to, to, to really experience our full potential in the Lord. For us to really experience all that God has for us, we have to yield to him and let him be our boss. We have to be mastered by the master. We have to be led by that. That's what, that's what he's saying. Jesus says, I don't come and do what you want me to do. I come and you do what I want you to do. And that's the idea here. We need this rule. And we're, it's profoundly true in the spirit. And then, and then uh, there is a third thing. And that is that we're offered this rule. We're offered this refuge. We need it and we're offered it. So the first thing is we're rebels against God. The second thing is, but God is the ruler yet. And the third thing is what we really want in our deepest part of us and what we really need is to yield to him and we can yield to him and we can be ruled by him and we can find refuge in him. Let's read it. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. He doesn't say in verse 10, game over. He says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. This isn't the romantic kiss. This is the you kiss the ring of the potentate. You kiss the foot of the potentate. This is I yield before I, I happily yield before God. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. His justice is perfect, right? But listen to this. This is the way it ends. Blessed, that's the word carried from the first psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him there is a refuge in this king blessed are those who take refuge blessed are you young person you don't want anybody telling you what to do i get it you don't want to be told what to do where to go who to sleep with who to marry what to smoke what to drink you don't want anybody telling you what to do i get that you're a human being that's the way human beings are can i give you some advice from an old guy that spent a lot of time with his nose in the bible Yield to God as quickly as you can. Humble yourself and obey him. Love the idea of there is one in the universe who deserves your fealty, your loyalty, your love. Understand, this is the only way that you will have mastery over the things that would master you is that you are a servant of God, that you yield to him, that you say, your word is my guide. And, and, and your spirit is my guide. And, and that, there was a man named John, ironically, you know of this guy, that he actually made money in a real ugly, dirty way. He was a drunkard. He was immoral. And he made money in the dark slit, trade of slavery, of human beings of slave trade. You know of him. And he was converted. He was, you know the story, John newton was miraculously converted people said amazing they said amazing they said amazing grace john newton he wrote more than one poem you know he became a pastor a beloved pastor and he died faithful to the lord 
Here's one of the poems that he wrote. He was so conscious that he was under the rule of a, a benevolent king. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. One can never ask too much. Can I read it again? Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. One can never ask too much, John Newton wrote. And we still repeat the same mistakes. And we still have pockets of resistance. And we still have areas of willfulness and stubbornness. And it would be good, wouldn't it, for you to find those areas and quickly yield them to the Lord. And welcome the walk in the Spirit. Welcome the rule of the Spirit. That's what the psalm is saying. So I want to go to camp. I speak to kids. For years, one of the things I know that's on their heart is romance. I know this. And that's a big thing. That's an area in their life that they have to decide if they're going to make the decisions or if he's going to make the decision. I always tell the kids, you know, hey, give the pen to the Lord. He's the author of life. He can write a story you couldn't imagine. But if you wrestle the pen away from him and you, did, you determine you will write your life story, it won't be as beautiful as the one he would write. And a few years ago, I kind of made up a story. I thought it would be a good way to end our service today before we go out and play with the kids a little bit. Can I read it to you? you got to pretend you're at camp right now. Once there was a beautiful princess, and she loved to walk in the forest in the springtime. What she didn't know is that there was a brute beast who hid nearby, and he watched her every time she went for a walk. He was primitive. He was crude. He had no refinery, little civility. But as she walked out of the forest in the spring of the year, from the dark shadows, he fell in love with her. And one day he could take it no more, and he stepped out of the dark shadow and into her path. Her attendants immediately drew swords and sprang forward to defend the princess. But she was looking in the eyes of the beast, and she could tell that he meant no harm. He, he fell to his knee, and he begged for her hand in marriage. She said, oh, no, no, this is not how it's done. You see, I'm the daughter of the king. I have to have permission, you have to have permission to court me. And above all, you have to be a nobleman. You're not only a common man, but you're a brute beast. You, you would never have permission to court me. And so the brute thought long and hard about what it meant to be a nobleman. What was a nobleman? Could a common man ever become a nobleman? And his heart was confused and crushed. He was his own man. He answered to no one. He feared no one. But what was a nobleman? Could a common man ever become a nobleman? Would he, would he even want to? And if he gave up his freedom to do what he, would he ever really feel free? And would he ever really feel happy again? He asked everyone he knew. And eventually he settled on a plan to answer the question that was in his soul. He got a job hauling manure from the lower level of the castle in carts where the king lived. And from there, he was close enough to watch the king come and go. He was diligent, and he was faithful in his job. Finally, he was entrusted with greater responsibilities. He watched what the nobleman did. He, the men who surrounded the king, 
He watched how the king lived and what the king did day after day. He was a good king. He was a kind king. He was a wise king. His heart was filled with admiration for the king. And more and more, he was given assignments that drew him into the presence of the king. And one day he was called into an audience with the king himself. And he was made a noble man. He continued to serve the king. He was given many assignments, more and more important all the time. And he became one of the finest noblemen in the kingdom. And then one day, he was summoned into the presence of the king again. And the king said, I have an assignment for you. You are a trusted nobleman. I thereby hereby pronounce that before all this company today, you have permission to win the hand of my daughter in marriage if you can win her heart. And not long after that, the nobleman and the princess were married with great fanfare because the common brute learned to obey the king and to serve the king and to admire the king. God help you to love the king and obey the king and admire the king and follow the king. Stand with me. And we're going to be dismissed in prayer. And we're going to go out and have some fun with the kids. What's going to happen afterward is that if you go quickly, you'll meet them in the fellowship hall. But if you dally about and talk, you'll need to meet them out that end of the church. Come and pray more. Yeah.